Again, Revelation 13. Now, over the last uh, five verses or so of Revelation 11, John records the sounding of the seventh and final trumpet. And he documents for us specifically the heavenly response to the blast of this trumpet. John notes the declaration of these loud voices as to the coming finality of God's plan. He continues by describing how the 24 elders fall on their face. They proceed to worship the name that is above all, the name of God. Lastly, John notices that the temple of God was opened in heaven, revealing for us the Ark of the Covenant. Well, in chapter 15, John will turn our attention back to this heavenly temple where the final set of God's judgments will end up being poured out on the earth. Beginning with Revelation 12, John takes a bit of a pause, a reprieve, and he does this to introduce us to some of the other characters kind of central to this tribulational period and its narrative. Last Sunday, when we covered chapter 12, we were introduced to five such characters. A woman, which represented Israel. A dragon, the great serpent of old, Satan. A child, a male child, we identified as Jesus. Michael the archangel was easy. And the woman's offspring, those that also came to Christ during this period of tribulation. Now in chapter 13, we're going to be introduced to the two other characters. We will see here this morning a beast rise out of the sea, followed by another beast who will rise out of the land. Again, with regards to this section of Scripture, twice in Revelation 12, John refers to what he's seeing as being literally a sign. That's how he describes it. Like what he sees and what he's writing, keep in mind, is not visible to anyone else. It's a sign, a sign given to him. As such, what he records should be viewed as being illustrative. It shouldn't be taken literally like there's an actual beast. This is all figurative language. And the figurative language is employed by John in order to kind of articulate and help us see the nature of these characters. Chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. John says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast, the beast which I saw, it was like a leopard. Now, look at the, the, the language he's using. He's not saying it was a leopard. He's saying it was like a leopard. And there's a lot of different variations in which this description, he's fast, he's cunning. It's not a spotted cat. That's not what he's saying. It's like a leopard. His feet, again, not the whole body, but just the feet, of this beast were like the feet of a bear. And, and feet talk about stability and strength. The mouth of this beast, again, just the mouth, was, the, was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him, and note, him, a masculine tense, his power, gave him his throne, gave him his great authority. Now, right from the jump, John's vision here of this beast that he's documenting in these verses. Keep in mind, it's, it's identical, really. Almost identical. Very close. To a vision received 500 years before this. And recorded, documented, in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel receives almost the identical vision. And he, and he documents this. Now, this morning, we're not going to go to Daniel 7. We're not going to provide an in-depth uh, look or analysis of that vision in comparison to this one. What I've done at the bottom of C316.tv, the page that maybe you're following the notes with this morning, I've included a link. So if you want more details about the significance of the leopard and, and the bear and the lion, I would encourage you just to listen to that Bible study. It will do more of a comparison between the passages. This morning, I'm just going to stick with John's vision, and we're going to kind of unpack what we, what we take from what he's seeing. John, he opens by saying he's standing on a shore, right? And he sees a beast rise out of the sea. In Revelation 11, verse 7, we were very briefly introduced to this character, this beast, when John tells us that after the two witnesses had completed their three-and-a-half-year ministry, he, he writes, I'll read it for you, that the beast, again noting the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, will make war against these two witnesses, who have at this point uh, been immune from attack, They've been sealed, preserved. He makes war. He overcomes them. 
and he kills them. Employing the law of first mention, we can safely say that Revelation 13 intends to provide us now more information about the beast. So in chapter 11, in writing about these two witnesses, John kind of throws in this character. Again, the two witnesses, they're struck down dead. They lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half years. The world throws a party, a big shindig, a Mardi Gras. And as a result of it, you know, the world's celebrating. It's, it's, it's euphoric. It's, it's wonderful. The Antichrist, this beast, has, has done something no one has been able to do. And then the two witnesses are resurrected from the dead. People are freaking out. And they ascend to heaven. Cool story. You kind of have to introduce the beast. And so as John's writing here, He's like, well, I, I kind of gave you a nugget of a character, but now I need to give you some more detail. And so there's a connection, a parallel, between the beast that kills the two witnesses and this beast that we see being introduced in chapter 13. Now, from the context that's established, really in just this one verse, we know that going into this chapter, that the beast, again, the beast of the bottomless pit, we're told in chapter 11, meaning he's of demonic origin. And he's been given great power. In fact, the last line of verse 2 confirms that it had actually been the dragon, or Satan, again introduced, defined in the previous chapter, who gave this beast his power, his throne, and his authority. Not only does that mean that this man is distinct from Lucifer, so this is not Satan, this beast is not Satan, but in describing him as a beast, John is wanting us to understand this man's character, his character, his personality, was like a ravenous animal. It's what the word beast means. It's not something cute and cuddly. Not something you take home as a pet. This is a ferocious animal. Vicious. Now as John recounts what he's seeing, he tells us specifically, he's on the shore, he sees a beast rising up out of the sea. Now regarding biblical imagery, the sea, it's significant. First, the sea is often a reference to the nations of the world. When something rises out of the sea, it's rising out of, out of the nations. Additionally, the Hebrew people, interestingly enough, they were not nautical folk. Uh, they hated the water. <laughs> they, they didn't like the ocean. In fact, they were freaked out about the, about the ocean. The only time that we're ever told that Israel had a navy was back in the reign of Solomon. They built a navy, but no Jew would... would would be on the ship, so they had to recruit another nation to man the navy. <laughs> they, hated, they hated the ocean. They were freaked out by it. Interesting. Meaning that when you're reading through, not only is the sea a sign of the nations, but it's also kind of an indication, or, or it's a literary technique of the Hebrews, to describe like some place that's chaotic, it's scary, uh, it's, it's, um, it's evil, it's a place of turmoil. Figuratively, when John says the beast rises out of the sea, he's saying that this man is rising to power out of the nations in an atmosphere of great disorder, of, of, of a type of mayhem. Now back in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, following the opening of the first seal, John says, I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, as one could imagine, after the rapture of the church, so imagine the world where so many people, boom, and the twinkling of an eye are gone. Same with the children. Like the chaos, the scene. Like the world will be, will be a dicey place indeed. And it will create or foster a perfect opportunity for a charismatic leader in the midst of all of this chaos, all this turmoil, all this uncertainty, to come upon the world stage promising, in particular, peace and stability. Now the case can be made, and I'm of the opinion, that Revelation 13 verse 1 is really recounting the same event as we find in, in chapter 6 verse 1, but it's recording the rise of the Antichrist from an entirely different perspective. You can make the case that in chapter 6 verse 1, you're getting the, the vantage point of this man from the earth riding a horse, conquering hero. But now we're seeing the vantage point of heaven. This is not a conquering hero. This is not someone that, that should be celebrated. In fact, this man rising to power is nothing more than an evil beast. 
John will use this term beast frequently, in fact, predominantly, in order to describe, again, the brutal character of this man. It will be his go-to terminology, the beast. That's what he calls him. Now, this world leader is referred to in Scripture with other names that you might run across. The man of sin, he's often referred to. The son of perdition. The lawless one. Or, as we kind of know him in popular culture, the Antichrist. This man, this beast, this Antichrist, will be a final world leader who possesses the grand audacity to present himself to the world as literally being the instead of Christ. It's a good way of understanding anti. Not that he's against Christ, which he is, but he's presenting himself as a replacement Christ, an instead of Christ. Now for reference, the prophet Daniel actually wrote more about this man than virtually anyone else in the scriptures. And he prophesied that the evil Antiochus Epiphanes, this Greek leader, was a foreshadowing of what this man will be. And if you study Antiochus Epiphanes to gain insight in the Antichrist, again, he's a beast, an evil man. Daniel will call him in his prophetic writings the king of fierce countenance, the prince that shall come, the desolator. He'll call him a despicable person, the willful king. And in Daniel 7, he just calls him the little horn. Now regarding the Antichrist, John says here in our text that he had seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. In Revelation 17, we will be given more insight into what these specific references mean, what they represent, what they reflect. For our purposes this morning, the big takeaway is that the Antichrist will rise from the sea, rise from the nations, rise in an atmosphere of chaos through what will likely be a ten-nation confederation of European countries in league with three additional regional global superpowers which are represented by the leopard, the bear, and the lion. Again, that's just a fly-by summary of the information you'll gather from a more in-depth look at Daniel 7. Verse 3, again, sticking to our text here. John says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. In this verse, John is describing a moment. Again, we don't know at what point or within the chronology. But a point in time during the rise, the ascent, maybe even the reign of the Antichrist, where he ends up suffering some type of, of mortal head wound. You can imagine it would likely come from an assassination attempt. Now, from the text, it's very difficult to say with any type of, of certainty whether or not the Antichrist, this beast, dies from the, from the wound and then was resurrected, or maybe he somehow survived what really should have been a death blow. You can, you can interpret it either way. But the reaction of the world to what happens here, his surviving of this assassination attempt, it solidifies not just his popularity, but his following. Again, the world marveled and followed the beast. In verse 14, John actually describes this, he'll describe this as a deadly wound that came specifically by the sword. And in the Greek, when you, when you get into the particulars of that word sword, um, it could probably be translated as AR-15. Um, no, it actually just means sword. Um, this detail that the Antichrist will be killed by a sword is actually confirmed in another place. Uh, Zechariah the prophet writes of this in chapter 11, verse 17. He says that as a result of this attack, the prophet, he notes that the sword shall be against his arm and his right eye. Again, very specific about this moment. So he's this assassination attempt, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit him in the arm, the right eye, Adding, Zechariah adds, that the, from the blow, his arm, again, we don't know if it's the right or the left, will be withered, and his right eye will be totally blinded. So he does suffer some effects from the assassination attempt. Survives, the world is, in, is enthralled. Verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon, again, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast, again, the Antichrist, and they worshiped the beast speaking of the world, saying, who is like the beast? 
who is able to make war with him? And again, remember back in chapter 6, verse 2, he was given a bow, riding a horse, to conquering and to conquer. During this time, what you should take away from this, this verse is that there will be, within the religious climate of the world, overt sa- Satanism. Like, they, they worship the dragon. They worship the Antichrist. They know who the Antichrist is. They know where his power is derived from. Continuing, John says he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. In line with what we know from other passages, it seems as though a significant change in the Antichrist's attitude and really his presentation shifts. Something happens. There's a change that occurs at the halfway point of this seven-year tribulational period. At first, again, remembering how the man comes onto the scene, the Antichrist is viewed as being a man of courage. I mean, he rallies the world around him. No one looks at him as like, oh, you're, you're the devil. No. He's charismatic. His popularity soars. In fact, Israel will come to accept this man in the first three and a half years as being their Messiah. With a strong hand, he leads the world community back from the brink of chaos caused by the rapture into a place of relative stability in spite of all the cataclysmic events happening on the earth. This man is able to successfully broker peace through strength. He rebuilds the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And yet, at the three and a half year mark, and we keep getting this this reference over the last few chapters, uh, the three and a half year mark, which again is the moment that Satan is cast out of heaven, no longer being able to accuse the brethren, Satan knows his time is now short, we were told in the previous chapter. And on account of this, as being his instrument of wickedness, the Antichrist, again, Satan giving him his power, his throne, his authority, uses this man to kill the two witnesses, commit what's known as the abomination of desolation. He enters the temple. He declares himself to be God. He attempts to eradicate the Jews who are able to successfully flee into the wilderness to a place of refuge. Again, all this recorded in chapter 12. In response, though, to this satanic attack of the Jewish people being thwarted, this protection, his ire turns, the Antichrist, to killing Christians and anyone that would claim to be a follower of Christ Jesus. John says that for a period of 42 months, and he's specific, 42 months, not 43, not 41, 42 months, which equates to three and a half years or 1,260 days. John says the Antichrist will speak great things. Look at the text. Great things. In, in the original language, it, it means that he makes, he makes outlandish proclamations, statements. And he utters blasphemies. This man slanders. Or, or it, he speaks in a reproach, reproachful manner. He opens his mouth, John says, and he speaks blasphemies against God. Again, this man is not an atheist. He speaks blasphemies against God, against God's name, against his tabernacle. He even speaks blasphemies against those who dwell in heaven. Like this Antichrist, at this three and a half year mark, when he declares himself to be God, he becomes openly, actively hostile to Jesus and anyone that would claim to be a follower. Verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints, and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names are not have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now back in Revelation 12, verse 17, John tells us that the dragon was so enraged with the woman and her escape, her successful escape into the wilderness, that he, quote, went to make war with the rest of her offspring. And then John defines who these offspring are. He says, 
the offspring are anyone who keeps the commands of God and who have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And apparently, here now, the dragon making war, he's going to use the Antichrist to be his vessel for this conflict. As to the timing of all of these things, according to Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, the Antichrist was only allowed to, quote, make war against the saints until the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Two things we should take away. It places these 42 months unequivocally at the second half of the tribulational period, after this abomination of desolation. Secondly, it tells us that what, what stops the persecution So this war will continue. This persecution will be relentless. The only thing that will stop it, Daniel says, is the arrival of the Ancient of Days or the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, it's safe to say that this phrase, the saints, is a reference to any follower of Jesus. I mean, the word is used in the Old Testament to describe believers looking to the Messiah. And the New Testament, this word saints, the saints, the idea of the saints, refers to the followers of Christ. So we have this term used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, referring to anyone that's a follower of the Lord. That being said, the extrapolation that some make, that the reference here of the saints is somehow a reference to the church, or to Christians in that context, it's really not substantiated by the text itself. Like, notice in verse 9 that John uses a similar refrain, a refrain we're familiar with at this point in our travels through the book of Revelation, but he uses this with a a notable omission. He says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. But what does he leave off? Again, we've heard this before. Repeated at the end of every one of the letters, all seven, that Jesus wrote to the churches. What's missing that we find from chapters 2 and 3 is is that if anyone has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's left off. That's not included here or at this point in history, implying that this message for the saints, yes, refers to followers of Jesus, but doesn't seem to have an application to the church in the context of the working of the Holy Spirit through the church. It implies, by the way, that the church is not present on the earth during this time period, and that the saints, while they're followers of Jesus, are this this different class, those who have come to faith in the Lord after the rapture. Furthermore, just to substantiate it, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus made an interesting promise. He said, on this rock I will build my church. And then he adds, of his church, that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That's a glorious promise for us, right? No matter how bad things get on this earth, the church will be able to stand against the enemy. That the gate, even the gates of hell, will not be able to overcome the church. But the scene being described for us here are the saints being what? Overcome. Authority, power was given to overcome the saints. It's a brutal period of history. But Jesus' promise to the church if the church is in this time period, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. In fact, in fact, it contradicts. Now, in verse 10, John adds a quick amendment here for this period of persecution. Verse 10, he, he says, He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. It's been said that the book of Revelation is probably the most Old Testament-like of of the new. This is a good example of it. In the midst of of his narrative, we kind of have a proverb. It's it's how it reads. It's how it sounds. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Now, the question we should ask to understand what's being uh, articulated is what is the patience? And this word patience, the source of endurance, that's what the word means, What is the patience and the faith or the ability to trust God of the saints who are left to endure this brutal period of human history? That's kind of the question that's out there. How are they able to endure? How are they able to trust? How are they able to have faith? 
And then John here, he's answering his own question. He says, it's the fact that he who leads into captivity, or the one who, who takes captive, shall go into captivity, or won't be able to escape being taken captive himself. And then he says, he who kills with the sword must also be killed with the sword. Now, there are all kinds of truths about God that should enable any believer to endure and persevere through the most difficult seasons of persecution. Have you ever experienced a season of persecution at work? Someone that knows you're a Christian and they just ride you and they're just ambivalent towards you and, and there's just a hatred. There's, it's vitriolic. Persecution. You know, in the place of persecution, in the place of trial, when you're being hated on because of your faith, you know, there's a lot of things in Scripture that should encourage you to endure, to persevere, so that you keep the faith. I'll give you one that should be added to the list. It's called the law of divine retribution. To me, it ranks very high on that list. And the law of divine re retribution states that since Jesus is righteous, and that all wrongs will one day be righted, you should take comfort that whoever's persecuting you will get theirs in the end. <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that's really what's being articulated. Like, in the moment of persecution and trial and conflict, again, a lot of things you can rely back on, but one is the idea of, like, you know what, buddy? I've been bought with the blood of Christ. Jesus is on my side. He gonna get you. You know? I mean, that's what's being articulated. Like, there's no escaping the reality that during these final 42 months of man, man's reign on the earth, we'll see the followers of Jesus face a slaughter unlike anything we've ever seen before in the history of the earth. And yet John is telling us here that those facing this slaughter take solace. Like, their solace is the knowledge that at the end of it all, at the end of this 42 months, at the end of this time, Jesus is going to be returning to earth and he is going to be wielding a sword and no one will be able to escape it. That's what he's saying. As the scriptures say in Romans 12 and Hebrews 10, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Years ago when I was in high school, our youth pastor irritated us greatly. And being the kind group of disciples that we were, <coughs> decided to go toilet paper his house, which we did. It was a beautiful thing. We toilet papered his house in the middle of the night, and then we knocked on the door, hid out in the bushes, wanted the reaction. And then our plan was to clean it up. Have good fun, but we'll clean it up. Well, he comes out with a trash bag, and he begins to clean it all up. Now, we can't present ourselves at that point. That's just not how this works. <laughs> so, next weekend, we were like, well, he needs to learn. So we toilet papered his house again. Knocked on the door, hid in the bushes. He came out with a trash bag. You're not learning. So the third week rolled around. And we toilet papered his house for the third weekend in a row. And I'll never forget, he came out, I mean angry, staring out into the darkness. And he says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I'm his instrument. And our parents got called in the morning. Didn't play out real well. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb. It spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of, of men. Now, with regards to this second beast, this final character, that John sees coming up out of the earth. All we really know of this individual is derived from this one passage of Scripture. 
It's interesting that this individual seems to be one of the very few characters that plays a significant role in the end time scene that was kind of concealed from view with regards to the Old Testament prophets. We don't have much written about this character apart from this passage. Now for starters, our text is clear that this man is separate from the Antichrist. This is another, this is another character. How do we know that? Well, the, the beast, the first beast, comes out of the sea. Contrast, this beast comes out of a different location. He comes out of the earth. We know they're similar because they're both described as being beasts, but they're different. Apart from this, we know this man's primary function during the Great Tribulation will be to support the first beast. So his job is to support, to kind of come alongside the Antichrist. As John says in verse 12, he exercises the authority of himself? No. He exercises and acts the authority of the first beast. Think of him as kind of like the sidekick. With this in mind, it's evident that his primary function was to encourage and facilitate the worship of the first beast, the Antichrist. And to accomplish this, John tells us that this man will possess the ability to perform great signs. Now, this is not parlor tricks. This is not illusions. This is He's going to perform signs, real things. And then we're given an example. Look at it. This man can cause fire to come down from heaven in the sight of men. Now, now we have evidence in the Bible of the existence of what you might call dark magic or the, the, the black arts. Pharaoh's magicians, as an example. If you remember the story where, where Moses and Aaron go, and, and they go before Pharaoh, and they throw down, Moses throws down his, his rod, his staff, and it turns into a snake. Pretty cool. I'd like to see you try that. Pharaoh's not impressed because he turns to his magi- magicians and he's like, y'all do the same. So they throw down their staffs. They also turn into serpents, like actual snakes. Like black art, black magic, real things. Now, Moses' snake then eats the other ones, showing that, you know, more powerful. But this stuff happens. It's real. What makes this interesting? Yes, he can perform great signs. But we're told that he's also able to call down fire from heaven. <laughs> Bella, helper. I'm hearing myself speak through the live stream. In case you're watching and you're wondering what's going on, I'm live streaming to my own self with a delay, interestingly enough. I'll give it a pause so I can edit all of this out. Back to fire from heaven. That's that's a unique thing. In fact, there's the only examples of that happening in the Bible and scripture. It only occurs through the, the true prophets of God. Like there's no example of a false prophet being able to do this because raining down fire from heaven was the indication of God's pleasure. A great illustration of this, a great example would be Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're running around their altars, scratching themselves, trying to get fire to rain down from heaven. And they can't. Elijah does. The pleasure of God. This guy can do it, which is unique. Additionally, the idea of raining down fire from heaven, probably he's acting as kind of this counterfeit or counteracted uh, character to the two witnesses who are also able to rain down fire and perform signs. And so we have God's witness, but we also have this satanic witness. Now, the identity of this man. Like the greatest clue that we have as to this man's identity is found for us in Revelation 19, verse 20. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Following the battle of Armageddon, John writes that the beast, the Antichrist, was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, which he was able to deceive those who received the mark of the beast and worship his, his image. These two were then cast into the lake of fire. So there is no doubt that the second beast rising out of the earth is this false prophet. In fact, in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is teaching on the same time period. He would caution those who were living in the Great Tribulation. He says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, don't believe it. For false Christ, Antichrist, and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, when John says 
Again, in contrast, we have one beast out of the sea. This beast rises up out of the earth. We're given an interesting indication as to where the false prophet will ultimately derive his authority. Well, there's no question that the Antichrist will rise out of the nations, again, the sea, making him a political leader. The false prophet will rise out of the religious institutions of man. Again, that's a great uh, illustration of the earth. When you, when you f- come across the imagery of the earth, it's the institutions of man. Like this man, as such, will be a powerful religious leader who will support and promote the divine claims of the Antichrist. To this point, this description of him having two horns like a lamb while speaking like a dragon, indicates that he will have, he'll possess a, a very gentle demeanor. He'll have likely a soft delivery, but his words will be shrewd and deeply deceptive. Like in many ways, this man's pitch to the world, it will be very similar to the way in which Satan tempted Eve. Remember in Genesis 3, the serpent came and said to Eve, Has God indeed said? It was soft, but it was deeply deceptive. It contained a measure of truth, but twisted to his own ends. It's worth taking kind of a quick moment to acknowledge where the religions of man will ultimately lead. You know, when you read commentaries on the topic, the general consensus is that the dividing lines... Like what today makes each world religion distinct. Those dividing lines or those distinctions will continue to erode over time until we get to this moment where we have this like universalism, universal ideal. We're all, it's, it's, it's all the same God, just with different names. Coexist, right? The problem with that idea is that wh- while it might be true that this, the, the mer, the, the breaking down of the distinctions will set the stage for a false prophet to consolidate power and influence. Don't miss where the religions of man end. This is important. Revelation 13 is clear that the religions of of men will lead, in the end, to the worship of one man who will posture himself as being a replacement Christ to Jesus. It's not that we'll get to a moment where, where Allah and the God of the Jews and the God of the Christians and, and, and the Hindu gods, that, that it's all really one God with different names. No, 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 no. That's not where the religions of, of men land. They will end with, here's, here's God, worship Him. It's the worship of one man. John continues, verse 14, and he, again context, false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth By those signs, which again he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, so he's able to perform kind of the supernatural, all designed to add weight and credibility to his message. He tells those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He, the false prophet, was granted power then to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. (laughs) Trippy, right? This false prophet, he's able to deceive those who dwell on the earth. His credence, his credibility being reinforced by these various supernatural signs. You know, he's able to perform, granted to do. But John says here in this passage that his greatest deception will come in the form of this image. In verse 14, he commands the world, again, the false prophet commands the world, He he commands them to, look at it, to make an image to the beast. And the whole intention of this was to commemorate, celebrate his surviving of this deadly wound, or potentially even his resurrection, however you read it. What they end up creating, though, was not an image to the beast. Note, it was an image of the beast, or some type of object that ends up being formed into the image and likeness of the Antichrist. Now, as crazy as this might seem, John tells us that the false prophet was then granted the power to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image comes alive. 
So much so that the image of the beast can speak and cause as many as would not worship the image to be killed. Like, not only does the false prophet's ability to, to rain down fire from heaven make him unique and particularly deceptive, but this act of causing an actual image, a statue, an idol of the Antichrist to come alive, <laughs> that's also a bit of an outlier. Like, for example, in Psalms 115, we read that their idols are silver, silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Again, the unique thing is that idols aren't living things. But unique to this moment in history, <laughs> for the first time, we have here an idol made by men into the image of a man allowed to come alive, further adding to the deceit of the false prophet. And I should add, if you study this, that, that all the kind of the modern conjectures or explanations for this really fall short. Like you'll read people that say, well, this might be a clone. Of the Antichrist. Or maybe it's AI, some computer generated thing. It, it all falls short because we're told that the false prophet gives breath. Like it couldn't have been some technological development because last I checked, technology doesn't breathe, come alive. Verse 16. The false prophet causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666, which is probably the, the most famous of all the passages in the book of Revelation. The mark of the beast. And keep in mind, as you're trying to understand what this is, the context. Like the context by which the idea is introduced. Verse 15 sets the stage by which the false prophet has made the worship of the Antichrist and this image mandatory. John tells us, in fact, that anyone who refuses to worship the image of the beast would be killed. Well, it's true that this mark will require will be required if you want to engage in the public marketplace or possess the ability to buy and sell. Keep in mind, and this is critical, the economic benefit of having the mark of the beast is purely a secondary byproduct of the main purpose behind the mark. That's not the purpose of the mark. You see, taking the mark was first and foremost an act of worship and the demonstration of one's loyalty to the Antichrist. Like the mark of the beast, think of it as a religious litmus test that no one alive was able to avoid. It was the line of demarcation. In fact, in verse 16, John is clear the false prophet will require everyone. It doesn't matter. Anyone, everyone, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, everyone is required to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. And don't be deceived as to where all of this lands. Again, I mentioned that all the religions of the world are leading not to some great universalism. It's leading to one man that the world will be required to worship, a replacement Jesus. But it's also a fact that a tolerant world that embraces the lie in the end will be very intolerant towards anyone who decides to take a stand for truth. There aren't differing opinions on who the Antichrist is. It won't be tolerated. It'll be cancel culture, literally. One of the things that you need to note about this dynamic is that the ultimate consequence for refusing to take the mark, the main consequence... It will not be some type of economic exiling, which will result, but the consequence of not taping, taking the mark will be your swift and immediate death. 
That's the consequence. It's not like, oh, well, you can't go into Publix unless you take the mark. You have to grow your own food. No, it's, no, you're going to take the mark, and if you don't, we're going to kill you. And the Bible's actually very clear how you'll be killed. Let me read it for you. In Revelation 20, verse 4, John says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their, hand, their heads. Literally, failure to take the mark will not be the way you get ahead during this time period. Come on, I'm keeping you on your toes. Conversely, you should keep in mind as well. So there's a consequence for failing to take the mark. But there is actually a worse consequence if you do. Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11, we're told that if anyone worships the beast in his image, if anyone receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will ascend forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, who receives the mark of his name. So there are consequences each way, one very temporary and one very eternal. Now, pertaining to what this mark actually is, I think scholars have very much overcomplicated the issue. Sure, our text makes evident that there is an economic component, but it's a serious leap to suggest that the mark is some type of microchip that gets implanted on one's forehead or under uh, their right hand. Again, the mark is a religious litmus test. The whole intention is, is to demonstrate your rejection of Jesus and allegiance to the Antichrist. It gets critical, you keep in mind, that John calls whatever this is, he calls it the mark. In the Greek, the word mark, it describes a physical and permanent stamp or the marking or a marking that is visible on one's skin. The idea of, of a microchip, you can't see it, which defeats the purpose because this is about allegiance. Like The idea of a mark and the context in which John is referring to it. In Roman culture, a mark was the sign of ownership. It was used in, in the slave trade, the slave world. Think of it as a brand. You're branded with a mark. It's permanent. You can't get rid of it. You can't change it. Aside from this, don't, don't miss the reality that the false prophet will require one of three things be marked on a person's right hand or forehead. Like John mentions the mark in our text, which is likely some type of insignia or logo. He says the mark could be the name of the beast, which is probably the actual name of the Antichrist, or it could be the name of his number, which then he says is the number of man. The number is 666. Like, the mark of the beast is not just limited to the number 666. It's one of three variations. You'd be like, I'm not really into the 666 thing. I'd rather have his name or the logo, the insignia. Three manifestations, all being the mark of the beast. Now, I know you're wanting to know what is 666. Because if you have wisdom and understanding, you're aware. I have no idea. Apparently, I lack wisdom and understanding what my parents always said mark of the beast so what's it about time we have left which is very brief let's take a step back to help you understand what it's all about the 10,000 foot perspective of what's going on in this chapter okay in the end everything kind of begins here with satan being cast out of heaven relegated to the earth he knows his time is short and so what is Satan doing in the chapter? Like if you look at it from a macro perspective, Satan is, is, it's interesting, but he's attempting to establish his own religion and direct defiance of God's. Now what makes this endeavor very difficult for Satan is that Satan doesn't have an original bone in his body. Satan is really nothing more than, than the great copycat. He has no new ideas. Like, broadly speaking, kind of go with me here. But what John describes for us in Revelation 13 is Satan's attempt at establishing 
what I believe to be his own triune Godhead. He's trying to set up his own trinity. Like, always remember, starting with the fall. Like, what was the one thing Satan always wanted? Like, what precipitated his fall from heaven? Well, it was the fact that he wanted the worship that had been reserved to God alone. He wanted the worship of man. Now, it would appear, Satan being cast to the earth, that he's like, I'm going to be worshipped by these people. So what does he do? He's content to receive the worship of humanity through a human representative. The Antichrist, whom he sends, who rises up in his image and likeness. Think about it. Revelation 12, verse 3, Satan is described by John as having seven heads and ten horns. But now this beast is also described how? Also possessing seven heads and ten horns. They're different, but they're the same. Furthermore, in, in the same way that Jesus, Jesus came in both the power and authority of his Father, right? Jesus came to do nothing but the will of his Father. He was the human manifestation of the presence of God, the unseen God, could be seen in Jesus, and he came in the power of God, did God's will and not his own. The Antichrist is the same thing. He is an anti-replacement Jesus. He comes in the spirit, the power, the authority of the unseen Satan. He is his physical manifestation, representative likeness on earth. It's also worth pointing out that just like Jesus, how will the Antichrist get the world to follow him? He will point to his resurrection from a mortal wound as being the evidence of his deity, right? Just like Jesus. Again, nothing new here. Not only is this the reason that the world marvels and follows the beast, but it actually becomes the central uh, point of the false prophet's entire message. It's the justification of the creation of this unholy image. Again, what substantiated Jesus' deity? It was his resurrection from the dead. Again, complete pattern that's being followed uh, continuing the type think about it if the antichrist is a replacement jesus and the satanic trinity then the devil also knew that he would need a counterfeit holy spirit enter the false prophet like is it a coincidence that the false prophet's entire job right is to testify promote and lead the world in worship of the antichrist it's not the worship of himself it's the worship of the antichrist you see, just as the Holy Spirit, the false prophet, he didn't come of his own authority either. He came in power, performing great signs and wonders, to exercise the authority of the Antichrist, who's exercising the authority of Satan. Furthermore, the false prophet was able to demonstrate his power to the world in two ways, right? Two ways, I, I should add, identical to the Holy Spirit. First, Again, he has the ability to, to make fire come down from heaven onto the earth in the sight of men. How interesting, right? That all throughout scriptures, the presence, pleasure, and power of the Holy Spirit is always synonymous with fire coming down from heaven. Think about the day of Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit resulted of cloven tongues as a fire resting on, on the, the heads of the disciples. The pleasure of God fire secondly in john 20 we're told how the resurrected jesus appeared to the disciples the upper room and, and then we're told something interesting they have a conversation but we're told that jesus breathed on them saying receive the holy spirit you know it's the holy spirit that breathes life into the souls of dead men you are alive in christ for one reason you have been filled with the holy spirit makes you come alive so that the old man is dead. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. All things have become new. You are not the same person. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit. You've been made alive when you were dead. But what does the false prophet do? He breathes life into this statue of, of, of a man. Like the whole act intends to deceive men into thinking that real life was found in following this image following the beast, the Antichrist. Like with all that in mind, like the entire idea then of the converted receiving a mark from the false prophet, again, not from the Antichrist, from the false prophet, was 
all satanic copycat. Again, look at verse 16. John says that in response to a decision to accept the beast and in turn worship the dragon, it's the false prophet representing the Holy Spirit who causes everyone to receive this mark. Notice, they receive a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. The language being used here is not accidental. In the Greek, the word on is actually epi. (laughs) It's the same word we find Jesus using in Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus told the disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait. He says, wait for you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Same word. You shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. A mark shall be put upon you by this copycat Holy Spirit, copying the fact that we're sealed, we're sealed for the purposes of God. How? Through the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Same word, same verb as playing on the same analogy. Like there's no surprise that the mark of the beast would be used by the false prophet as the ultimate sign of this false salvation. In 2 Corinthians 1, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4, I could go on. But the Apostle Paul tells us that the followers of Jesus, the believers in Jesus, that our eternal fate is sealed. How? It's sealed with the Holy Spirit coming upon. As we've already seen, again, in the Great Tribulation, you have 144,000 being sealed. And how are they sealed? With the name of God on their foreheads. Again, Satan is nothing but a copycat. He's establishing his own religion. Now, there are two big ideas, and I'll send you on your way. Two big ideas and a very interesting passage. Right now, I just want you to know, and I'm going to do this quickly. You have three options when it comes to Jesus. Right now, this moment. Three options. You can follow him. You can reject him. Or you can wait to make that decision. It's true. Right now, this moment. That being said, at some point during the Great Tribulation, the day will come where you no longer have that luxury. So you have a luxury right now you will not have forever. Like at some point, you will be forced to reject Jesus and take a mark. Or you'll refuse a mark and find yourself accepted by Jesus when your life is taken. And the great irony, really, if we can be honest, is that while you might have three options right this very moment, you have no idea what happens when you leave those doors. In James chapter 4, we're warned, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Right now, yes, you have three options. You can follow Jesus, you can reject Jesus, or you can wait, but you don't know how long you get to wait. You don't. My second point You either follow Jesus or you follow an Antichrist. Like right now. It it might not be the Antichrist, but it is an Antichrist. You're either following Jesus or you're following some replacement for Jesus. Whether it's yourself or something else. Like you can accept the genuine thing or you can buy into a cheap imitation. You can have your fate sealed through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for life or you can be marked for death because you chose to worship the image of man and not man's creator. And you know, it's not an accident that as I'm I'm saying, like the, the heaviest thing I could possibly say in the Bible study, that all your eyes went to the TV screens turning off. And that's not an accident because that's Satan. There is someone here that needs to give their life to Jesus. And you got distracted from what I'm saying. You either worship Jesus or you worship the Antichrist. And he comes in all different shapes and sizes. A replacement Jesus. Replacement Jesuses always fail. They will enslave you and they will fail. They will promise what they can never provide. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the the Father but through him. He is good and he's gracious and he's loving. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. Nothing you have done that Jesus can't forgive and wash clean. 
You can be marked for eternal death or you can be sealed by the Holy Spirit for everlasting life. So Father, Lord, we just let that word settle in. In Jesus' name.